This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy development and implementation. Hello, I'm Des Dearlove, and this is a Thinkers 50 podcast. My guest today is Scott Anthony. Scott is the managing partner of InnoSight, the innovation and growth consulting firm. He's the author of a number of books, including The Little Black Book of Innovation and The First Mile. His latest book is called Dual Transformation, How to Reposition Today's Business While Creating the Future, which he co-authors with Clark Gilbert and Mark Johnson. Scott, welcome. Des, lovely to be here. So, Dual Transformation, uh, what's, what's the big idea driving this book? So, the idea in the book is totally summarized in the title of the book. So start with transformation. When we talk about transformation, we are talking about a change in form or substance. So this is not doing what you're currently doing a little better, a little faster, a little cheaper. It is the equivalent of liquid becoming a gas or a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. And the idea is when a disruptive shock hits your business, this is what you need to do to survive, let alone thrive. So then the second word in the title, dual, suggests that the answer here isn't a monolithic change effort. You're not doing a thing. You're doing two things. Transformation A, the first part of the equation, is repositioning today's business to make it more resilient. Transformation B, the second part of the equation, is creating tomorrow's business. And that is our answer for how you confront the dilemmas of disruptive change. Okay. Now this is this is the sort of problem people have talked before about the, the difficulty of a business kind of reinventing itself or creating a new growth engine because the big business, the main business, the old business tends to kill its offspring. Um, so so how does how is your approach different? Are you separating out into two businesses or are you is, can this go on under one roof? So the answer is yes, and that's what we think is different about the answer that we propose. And of course, a lot of smart people have thought about this problem, and I think there's something to learn from everyone who has approached it. But the offer, the answer that we suggest is that there is a C in our equation. So the A is transformation A, the B is transformation B. We do believe those need to be largely separated, but the C is the capabilities link, where you very carefully, very purposefully, and very selectively think about the connection you're going to build between those two. And if you do it in the right way, we argue, you can take what my colleague Clayton Christensen famously called the innovator's dilemma, which stops companies from capitalizing on disruptive change and flip it into the innovator's opportunity. Because you can do things that no startup company could do. And we've got examples in the book of people who have done that. So this is, in effect, this is the incumbent's advantage, if, if, they, can, if they can make it work. So what, what, what do those capabilities, what sort, can you give us an example? What sort of things are we talking about? Yeah, so one of the examples we profile in the book, an example that was a very influential example for me to show me the power of being a large established organization is what Medtronic has done in India to really change the heart disease market in that country. So basic story here, Medtronic, largest independent medical device manufacturer in the world. The pacemaker is one of their flagship products, struggling in India, even though there's more heart disease in India than any country in the world. Basic problem, their pacemaker is expensive and difficult to access. So they answer with a business model called Healthy Heart for All that involves direct-to-consumer advertising, involves remote diagnostic camps, and involves a loan program for people to get these devices they implant in their chest. 
really cool business model innovation, something that only Medtronic could do. What did it leverage? It leveraged the fact that it had a pacemaker, so it had the technology. It leveraged the fact that it knew the healthcare market in India. When it called on the doctors, they would answer. Leverage the regulatory clearance it had, leverage the balance sheet that it had to make the loans. Very few companies could put those pieces together. Now, of course, to do that, they had to create substantial separation from their core business because it was such a different model. But when they could combine together assets of scale with enough entrepreneurial freedom to do different things, they could make magic happen. And that's the sort of thing that we like to see more happen because the big companies are capable of doing so much more when they release themselves from the shackles that they often put on themselves. Now, I think um, and you mentioned Clay Christensen um, and, of course, Clay's idea about disruptive innovation. I think often it's misunderstood as well. People, people often think that you know, disruption means any, anything that kind of uh, impinges on your marketplace, whereas you know, the definition is, is very precise. But a lot of companies that I think people... I'm thinking of companies like Kodak, where people assume that they were looking in the wrong direction. And it's not actually the case. They, they, they had some of those disruptive technologies. It's just that they, they weren't able to do this dual transformation thing. I think, is that a fair interpretation? Uh, absolutely. So the, the very first thing we start with in the book is Kodak, which I think is such a painful story, and a story that is so often misunderstood. People think that this is a problem that Kodak didn't see digital yeah. imaging. They didn't see social networking. They saw it. They were an early mover in digital imaging. They produced digital cameras. They invested heavily. They bought a photo sharing site, Ophoto, in 2001, three years before Mark Zuckerberg starts creating Facebook. So they had the pieces. They had a legacy. Their tagline, share memories, share lives. They could have been Facebook. They could have done all of those things. The failure, in my mind, is the failure to reimagine the business model. The failure to go and say, yes, of course, let's ride this silver halide print business as far as we possibly can, and let's go and do something different where we can take imaging, take the connections that come from it, and push the business model in a different direction. Had they done that, Facebook, Instagram, and more could have been things that trace back to Rochester, New York, not to Silicon Valley in California. They were close. And there's other examples. There's, you know, we, 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 Nokia is another example, given in terms of the cell phone industry, of what we call mobile phones in the UK. Um, trying to think of um, BlackBerry. You know, they seem to be at the top of their mountain, and then all of a sudden, they were gone very quickly. Now, and we, we talk about it in the book, there, there's this great video, you can find it on YouTube, about how it feels when you're going through one of these things. So we, we know, of course, we're sitting here in 2017, we know it's the 10 year anniversary of Apple launching the iPhone. There's a video from April 2008, which is after the iPhone is in market with the co-CEO of Research in Motion, now renamed BlackBerry, Jim Balsillie, asking, talking about how everything feels. He's like, oh, everything's great. You know, we're doing great, we're going great, we're not a very well diversified company, but that's okay, because our business is so good. And this is when the disruption was in plain sight. So it wasn't that they couldn't see the the iPhone. It wasn't that they couldn't do the technologies behind it. It's the business model and ecosystem that Apple and then Google through Android developed that made it really hard for Nokia and Research in Motion slash BlackBerry to respond to. And this is the common pattern. It is not a problem of myopia. You can see it. It is a problem of reimagining and stretching the business model in the face of the change. Consistently, we have seen this challenge. And there are 
the counterexamples. There are companies that have done this, aren't there? I mean, I'm thinking IBM. You know, we, 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 they were, the, they were the great, one of those great sad failure stories when they, when they were in mainframe and they didn't get into microcomputers. But they're still around. They, they reinvented themselves. Yeah, so, so they did it famously in the Lou Gerstner era as they moved from being a product company to a product and service company. And they're attempting to do it again as they take the Watson platform, artificial intelligence and so on, and say, can we use this to create a big service infrastructure or service offering as we take our core business and move it to the cloud? And you've got other examples. Microsoft, you know, Microsoft is now, it is, it's an old company by company standards these days. It's 42 or so years old. And it went through a period of, I think it's fair to say, stagnation. But under Satya Nadella, it's doing some pretty remarkable things where it is driving big changes as it moves to the cloud and its core business and moving into a whole range of new growth areas. So you certainly have examples of established tech companies that have done it. In the book, we, we discuss some companies that might be a little bit less well-known for how they have innovated and transformed, like the U.S. health insurance company, Aetna, or the water utility company in the Philippines, Manila Water. That's one of my favorite examples. Or the postal carrier in Singapore, Singapore Post. And my view is if you can do this kind of stuff in postal carrying and in water utilities, there's no excuse for not approaching innovation in the right way for anybody anywhere in the world. Okay, so you have this, you have a neat little formula to, to remember the, the, the way that the dual transformation piece works. So it's A plus B plus C equals change. The, yes, the, and of course that is delta in yeah. mathematical equations, which is D in the Greek alphabet. So you've got A, B, C, D there. So A plus B plus C equals a great big delta D. Okay, so that's transformation A, which is, which is making your core business as resilient as you can in, in the markets plus B, which is the new piece, which is the new growth engine, plus C, which is leveraging your capabilities, and that's what gives you the transformation. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and I think one of the, the great examples of a company that's done all of this that we haven't talked about is Adobe. So, you know, Adobe, six or seven years ago, faced a crisis. Its core business was slowing. It had sold its software to everybody who you could imagine would want to buy it. It was dealing with piracy. There was a recession, blah, 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 blah. So it decided to essentially do a dual transformation. Transformation A was sunsetting the package software business and moving everything to the cloud, which is where you get Adobe software today. Transformation B was going into marketing analytics, emphasized or accelerated by the purchase of Omniture. The capabilities link between these things is the place in which Adobe is playing is in the creative industry where they've got lots of great access. And of course, they've got underlying technology that they can use in both cases. And if you look at how Adobe has performed, it has dramatically outperformed a number of its peers as it's gone through this big transformational journey. Okay. Now, another a quote that I, that I glanced upon, I, I happened upon in the book was that, that transformation really is the hardest challenge in business. And it sounded like quite a bold statement, but the more I thought about it, I think the more true it seems, the more it, the more it resonates. And I think what's, what, one of the interesting things about the book is that you go into the leadership challenges and what it feels like. Uh, one, of, one of your co-authors, who I, I should have mentioned when I was introducing you. Or I should have mentioned as well. I should have given some of the credit where credit is due. But it's actually somebody who's been inside a transformation. It's somebody who's been inside the tornado or the hurricane and, and, has, and has been through this. And I thought that was some of the most interesting stuff is that it's, it's, it's not always a comfortable, certain place. It, it's very much a case of, you know, um, not knowing what's going to happen next and whether you're doing the right thing, but having the courage 
of your convictions to follow it through. So talk a little bit about the leadership. How, how does one lead this sort of transformation? Yeah, so first let, let's give credit to the co-authors. So we've got Clark Gilbert and Mark Johnson. Clark is the one who we draw on a lot of his firsthand experience because Clark was an academic at Harvard, so he studied this but more critically has been a practitioner in a range of companies, CEO of a media company, the president of a university, now driving an online education business. So he has been on the front line of transformation. So a lot of what we channel in the book is what his firsthand experience is, combined with the experience that Mark and I have had largely as consultants advising great big companies. So the synthesized advice we have to leaders is, yes, this is, this is a bloody hard thing to do. We bring it down to four words that all begin with C. So you mentioned two of them. You need the courage to choose before the data is clear, because by the time the data is clear, it's too late to do anything about it. The burning platform, by the time you're there, you're already dead, so you don't want that. You need the clarity to focus. This is not hundreds or thousands of flowers that you're planting. It is a select few strategic moonshots that you're launching. You need the curiosity to explore. Even if you are focusing, the path to get there isn't going to be a straight line. There are going to be fumbles. There are going to be false steps. There are going to be mistakes. There's even going to be failures. But you need to keep dabbling and experimenting and trying, or you're never going to get there. And finally, you need the conviction to persevere. It's the hardest journey you're going to go through. There are going to be crises along the way. We've seen them every time we've been alongside someone in the journey crisis of conflict, a crisis of commitment, a crisis of identity. You know these things will happen if you don't have the conviction that this is the right thing for your organization, that there's a reason for what you're doing. When that first crisis hits, you're going to crumble. So that's a lot that I packed into the headline statements. And of course, the book goes through all this in more depth. But it is a really hard thing to do, no doubt about it. Another thing I like about the book is there's a nice little toolkit in the back. I notice, and one, and one of the you mentioned curiosity, but there's there's a, there's a sort of a diagnostic and, and and a way to make your company to understand how curious your culture is, and I think curiosity is one of those words that we don't hear enough in business. I think it's a very um, underrated um, you know element, underrated, underrated characteristic, and I like the fact you've you've, you've kind of quantified and you've you've got a way to. Um, for a leader to begin to make the company more curious and to understand where they are on that, um, that sort of uh, continuum. I would say this is a borderline obsession of mine now. So I've got four young kids. The oldest is 11. The youngest is one years old. And you know, if you've got kids, we enter this world as curious, creative beings. So you, you just try things, you ask questions, you're inquisitive, etc. And our institutions destroy that, in many of us. They, they hold us back, they tell us there's one right way to do things. And you go and you look at some of our largest, most powerful, most important institutions, large organizations, government bureaucracies, et cetera, and they're places where curiosity goes to die. And these are the things that we need to rise up to the challenges in the world today. So we've got to find ways to bring that innate human curiosity that, again, is inside everybody working in an organization out because that is the only way that we will tackle the problems that we're facing today. The startups will not get there fast enough. The startups don't have the capabilities to do it. We need the institutions who are sitting on this massive reservoir of untapped potential to realize just a little bit more to make this world a better place. And it's doable too, we think. I mean, finally, that last, last point. Another story I liked from the book was sort of something coming out of a crisis, and I'm thinking of the Twitter example, where the CEO said basically, you know, we're in trouble here, um, 
I want you to go away and, and be curious and come up with some solutions. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah, so the basic story, Twitter was founded as a company called Odeo, and Odeo essentially was a way to manage podcasts on your, your iPod, and Apple designed the, the functionality into its operating system. So the company was dead. I mean, there was no doubt the company was dead. So in desperation, the CEO said, everybody break up in teams of two, give me your best idea, because we like working together, let's figure out something else. And one of those teams featuring Jack Dorsey hacked together a solution. 140 character updates, and the rest is history. And the point that we make in the book is you don't have these kinds of side projects inside large companies, right? You exist purposefully to shut down side projects or not study side effects. Many drugs come, came at, about because something unanticipated happened, and we use the example of Viagra in the book. You don't tolerate messes, and sometimes from messes, greatness happens. This is how we had the development of penicillin because Fleming didn't clean up his labs. So these are the things that we need in our organizations. We need the side projects. We need to study the side effects. We need to have a little bit more mess and a little bit more chaos. Look, I live in Singapore, which is the, the least chaotic place in the world with the smallest amount of messes in the world. But even Singapore is saying, you know what? We can tolerate a little bit more because this is what we need to go and create our future. We probably should be using um, my teenage son's bedroom then as an example. It's, um, he's still got some curiosity and it's a hell of a mess. Scott <laughs> Anthony, thank you very much. Yeah, Des, appreciate it. Thank you. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy development and implementation.